Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Helena Gazelka. Hip replacement surgery is a common procedure that is necessary when the hip joint is worn or damaged. But what if there were alternatives to hip replacement surgery? And what are they? Well, Mayo Clinic is now providing a regenerative alternative to hip replacement surgery for certain patients. Dr. Rafael Sierra is an orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic, and he's here to discuss this with us today. Welcome, Dr. Sierra. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here today. The first thing I want to ask you is, what is regenerative medicine? Uh, well, regenerative medicine includes, it's a very large field that includes uh, many aspects, all, anything from re regeneration of musculoskeletal tissues, specifically in my field. But obviously, in any field, there's some regeneration. Uh, with respect to orthopedic surgery, regenerative medicine uh, involves the regeneration of bone, cartilage, muscles, uh, anything, for, anything that involves the musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal system. So Dr. Sierra, when I think about hip replacement surgery, and I'm sure many of our listeners as well, we think of older adults who might need a replacement, perhaps because they have arthritis, but I understand that you do hip replacement surgeries in younger patients as well. And I'm wondering why, what is the, what is the need? Yes, of course, that's a great question. And the youngest patient I've ever done a hip replacement on is 12. The oldest patient is 102. So certainly a huge gap. Uh, in between the youngest and the oldest patient. For the oldest, older patients, like you pointed out, it's, it's, it's mostly related to wear and tear arthritis in the hip joint. For younger patients, there's usually an underlying condition that has led to the degeneration of the hip joint. Uh, most common reasons are hip dysplasia, impingement, uh, a fracture of the femoral neck, uh, or some other condition that patients develop during their early uh, years that then leads to the degeneration of the joint. So if you think about the number of hip replacements, actually uh, the, the fastest growing age group is actually patients less than 55. Wow, that's amazing. I wasn't aware of that. So why would someone who is younger want to avoid a hip replacement surgery? Why not just do that as the, as the first surgery without uh, the regenerative? Yeah, so... Um, that's a question that we face every day in the clinic here, uh, especially when we're talking about younger or even older patients. So uh, just like anything that's man-made, um, even a Swiss watch wears and tears and you eventually have to have it replaced. Uh, some say that they last a, a century, right? But hip replacements don't. Unfortunately, hip replacements, like anything that's man-made, will eventually wear and tear and it's very similar to buying a brand new car where you're gonna use it every day and then you're gonna wear out the tires where the plastic in the hip will also wear out. And the younger you are, the harder you actually drive that car, so the harder you'll actually uh, use that hip replacement. So there's a quicker uh, time to eventually needing a second or a third or a fourth hip replacement. So. Our goal is to try to delay hip replacement when possible, uh, especially in the young patients. So what's the difference with regenerative medicine? Exactly what do you do there and does that wear out and have to be repeated? Uh, yes, that's, that's true. So uh, regenerative medicine, obviously we're taking uh, the, the body's own ability to heal 
and we're providing it with the tools to be able to regenerate, specifically with the hip joint. Um, so I'll, I'll give you three uh, good examples. So the first example is there are regenerative procedures that are uh, related to changing the mechanics of the hip. For example, a patient that's born with hip dysplasia has uneven loading through the hip joint. And so by changing the position of the socket, the hip is able to regenerate to in a better position that then allows better loading through the hip joint and then that prevents the damage and the tearing in the hip and the arthritis down the road. And we've shown that these procedures decrease the risk of a hip replacement by about 50%. So that's great. So that's one way of regenerating the hip joint. The second way is, for example, in patients that have the death of the bone in the femoral head. So if somebody has a fracture of the femoral neck, or it's seen in, also in patients without trauma, uh, what we call um, atraumatic uh, avascular necrosis or osteonecrosis, these patients then will have the death of the bone within the femoral head. Um, if, if the femoral head damage is not advanced to the point where the cartilage collapses, these patients can be treated with a regenerative procedure called a hip decompression. And then what we do is we make a hole into the femoral head and then that, that um, hole is then used to deliver bone marrow concentrate into the area of the necrosis. And that not only helps with pain, but also helps with regeneration of the tissue inside the bone. How, so, Dr. Sierra, how do you decide if they're a candidate for this decompression? So uh, the best patient, the ideal patient, is a patient that has a small area of necrosis that's no longer larger than 30% of the femoral head. And the femoral head is still round. It doesn't collapse because in later stages, then we have to sometime sometimes uh, go with other types of regenerative procedures, such as those where we actually remove the dead cartilage and bone and then replace it with cadaveric bony and cartilage and bone, what's also called an Oates procedure or an osteoallograph transfer to the femoral head. So those are three examples of regenerative procedures that we do around the hip, where we harness also the body's ability to heal uh, the problem. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about these conditions as, as well as the, the treatments per se. So most patients who have a hip replacement surgery are pretty happy with the procedure after they've had it. Pretty successful. So how successful are these types of surgeries that you're describing for us? So, um, so we need to understand that uh, the hip replacement is by far the most reliable operation for these conditions. However, because we try to preserve your cartilage, everybody, you know, there's nothing better than your own cartilage as a way to manage your hip if, if you can for as long as possible. So if you look at uh, procedures like the periacetab or osteotomy, which we talked about removing the acetabulum, where we have been able to show that if you don't do a periacetab or osteotomy, at uh, 20 years, 75% of patients will have arthritis in their hips, and 25% of them will need a hip replacement. 
with the procedure, we've been able to cut that by half. So only about 11% of patients at 10 to 20 years will need a hip replacement. So there's still going to be some, some patients that will require hip replacement, but we're decreasing that by half. With procedures such as the hip decompression, uh, we have good data today to suggest that we're able to halt the progression in about 70% of the hips at seven years, which is great because otherwise they're looking at a hip replacement. But we've also been able to determine that there are specific patient groups that have a higher risk of progression no matter what we do. And those include patients that have a very big area of necrosis or as one of the main causes of osteonecrosis is the use of prednisone, a steroid. If so 6% of patients that are taking prednisone will develop osteonecrosis. That's, that's what the literature shows. So if you're able to stop the prednisone and you get this treatment, you do very well. But if unfortunately there are conditions where people need chronic, need to continue to take steroids despite the damage that has occurred. And so we've shown that those patients have a four times higher rate of failure compared to patients that are not on steroids. And it has to do with the fact that steroids is causing the damage. We're trying to treat it, but then we're continuing to hit it and hit it and hit it. So it's hard to really uh, get the femoral head to heal if, you're, if the inciting factor is continued. Yeah, that makes sense. Can I go back to hip replacements and just ask you, when you do an actual total hip replacement, what is it you're replacing? The ball and the socket, and which one is the acetabulum? Okay, so uh, a total hip replacement is uh, uh, a replacement of both the socket and uh, the femoral shaft and the ball. So uh, what we do with the hip replacement is we completely remove by cutting the femoral neck, the femoral head, and then we actually create a cavity within the acetabulum, that's the, the pelvic side of the hip, where we actually impact uh, a metal shell, usually made out of titanium, and inside of that, we position a, a plastic called the polyethylene liner that then becomes the new cartilage, essentially. That's what wears in the hip. The plastic and then the ball, the new ball, which is usually today, at least at our institution, 90% of the femoral heads that we put in are made out of ceramic. Okay, interesting. Does the titanium make the alarm in the airport go off? Uh, it, it does, yes, it does, yeah. Uh, the new ones where you have to raise your hands and, and, and it comes across like this doesn't, but if they want you, you'll, you'll, you'll set the alarm off. So are there other surgeries? that you can do that are less invasive than a hip replacement, say? So uh, when we're entertaining a hip replacement, uh, there, you know, there are, and, you're, and we think that the damage in the hip joint is bad enough to require hip replacement, usually the best option is a hip replacement. If the damage is not that bad, or there are segments of bone that are damaged only, then potentially there are, pro there are I, I, I wouldn't call them less invasive procedures, but we call them uh, joint preservation procedures that can be done. Those include hip arthroscopy, for example, where you can go in with a camera and a shaver and a burr and remove areas of bone that's impinging or causing damage. 
Uh, I talked about the PAO. That's another procedure where we actually cut the bones around the pelvis and rotate around the hip decompression, the OATS procedures. All of these are procedures. Uh, some of them are like the hip decompression is minimally invasive. We, you know, there, it doesn't burn any bridges. It's a great operation because it's very little invasive for the patients, minimal complications. But when we talk about osteotomies, cutting the bones, those are bigger procedures and they all have to be done taking into consideration that if they fail, the hip replacement might be a little bit harder. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Sierra, to compare recovery times. So often we see patients who have hip replacements and they actually seem to recover at a fairly steady pace depending on the other medical issues that they might have. But what about regenerative procedures? Does it take longer to recover because you have to wait for something to grow or regenerate or recover longer? Yeah, so uh, again, it depends on the procedure. So a hip decompression, actually, if it's a simple hip decompression, for a, a, an, an area in the femoral head that is not collapsed, which is where the indication for the, that procedure. It's a very small procedure. We actually do it as an outpatient. The patient goes home the same day. They're fully weight-bearing right away. And I think that's one of the benefits of this procedure. It really does not burn any bridges. Um, if we're talking about osteotomies, um, uh, oats transfers, especially the, the uh, PAO as well as the osteochondral transfer, those actually take longer to recover than a hip replacement. And um, this is where I talk to patients about uh, banking. So we're banking your hip for its future use. Because even though the, the, the recovery might be a little bit harder now, to tell you the truth, if you're able to preserve this hip joint, you will be much better in the long run. So you will then be able to, you know, withdraw that money when it's grown 10 or 20 years from now. Uh, if we can save your hip for a decade or two decades, it's much better to have, have a hip replacement when you're 55 than when you're 35. Or even if you're 15, it's better to have it at age 30 than at age 15. So obviously, um, we will sometimes push for more regenerative and preservation procedures the younger the patient is. Um, because the hip replacements work so well today that the, the hip preservation procedures that we might have been pushing 10 or 15 years ago in a 65-year-old are probably the same ones that the same ones that we would be pushing in a 45-year-old today. And we may opt for a hip replacement just because the Again, because of innovation, our hip replacements are working so well that we know that at least we're getting at least 20 years. When I started practice 20 years ago, patients less than 55 years of age had a 30% chance of failure or needing a hip replacement uh, 10 years after their procedure. Now we're looking at, you know, 20 year follow up and only about, we think it's about a 1% failure per year. What if you do have to do the hip replacement in a very young person, you said a 12-year-old, uh, or someone in their 30s, can you replace it again later with a new one? Uh, yes, but this is where I think that the Mayo Clinic has done such a great job. So as uh, in 1969, uh, Mark Coventry, he was an orthopedic surgeon here, he, he did the first FDA-approved 
hip replacement in, in the US. And since that day, we have been following every single hip replacement that has been done here at the clinic through our total joint registry. And it's the oldest orthopedic registry in the world, uh, believe it or not. And so these patients are contacted with our, through our total joint registry personnel at two years, at five years, and 10 years, and they're asked to send x-rays for follow-up, and they fill out questionnaires. So these young patients, therefore, are reminded that they have to send in, because sometimes there's wear and, there, wear and tear occurs in the hip, and patients are completely asymptomatic. So we try to catch these early so that we can actually then, um, if we need to do things, we can do them before damage in the hip does occur. And then that revision might be easier than a more complex revision where there's been a lot of bone loss because of the damage that has occurred. Just to give you an example, next week, I'll be revising a patient that had a hip replacement done here in 1997. This is before the, the, the new plastic. And he is now 23 years out from a hip replacement. And I did his other hip replacement 10 years ago, and we've been following this one. And now he's finally having pain, and there's clearly somewhere in the plastic we're going to go have to go back and revise his hip. But some of these patients are lost completely with in other practices, and they're unable to follow. And then we get to see these patients where it's like a big hole, and we now have to make do a very big revision of the hip. Oh, that's amazing. That's consistency of care when you're seeing yeah. these patients so many years later. That's wonderful. I have often associated, I'm sure our listeners have too, regenerative medicine with athletes. So mm -hmm. they're having things injected, you know, uh, so, that, so that they will repair sports injuries, et cetera. Some of them are covered by insurance, now I know, um, and some aren't. Are the procedures that you perform um, covered by insurance? Uh, yes, the, the one procedure that sometimes gets a little bit pushed back from insurances is the hip decompression, mainly because of the injection of the bone marrow concentrate and uh, the feeling that it's somewhat experimental. However, the majority, I would say the majority of patients that I've operated on for this condition have had their procedures uh, um, covered by insurance. Dr. Sierra, how many patients do you think you've been able to delay or avoid uh, hip replacements in by uh, performing regenerative type procedures? Um, so I've probably done about 500 periacetabular osteotomies. I've done about 400 hip decompressions, a number of hip arthroscopies. And even if, I mean, even if I, I mean, I don't think I've had to replace more than 5% of those patients. Uh, maybe 10%. So I've, I think we're saving a lot of hips, saving one hip at a time. That's amazing. That's wonderful. Do other um, institutions offer these procedures? Uh, yes. The periacetabular osteotomy has become more common uh, around, you know, around the world and, and in the U.S. Uh, the hip decompression is a procedure that's done uh, infrequently in the U.S., uh, especially the way that I do that and with the instrumentation that I, that I, that I use that we developed here at the clinic. Um, although um, I know for sure that there are a number of surgeons that are continuing to do it um, in, in the U.S. I think it's not, it hasn't uh, gained as much um, interest. Uh, 
Um, on the, uh, the other procedures, which are even more complex, which are really the, the ones such as the OATS transfer, where we're actually dislocating the hip completely, the more complex procedures that, that involves the, the removal of the dead bone by dislocating the hip completely through a procedure that we call a surgical hip dislocation, and then transferring the cadaveric bone, which is uh, matched to the patient's defect. Uh, that's not done uh, frequently in the US. I think that uh, very few surgeons do that around, to tell you, around the world. I mean, there, there are some papers from people in France that do it. There's a couple of surgeons in Canada that do it. Uh, it's more commonly done around the knee. Uh, and for uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Mori, uh, does it around the elbow as well. But around the hip, it's, it's fairly, uh, it's not a frequent procedure. And I'm happy, and, and I'm, I'm happy that I have my colleague, uh, Dr. Critch, who's an expert in cartilage. Uh, we do these cases together because he's an expert at doing these OATS uh, procedures. Uh, so it's, it's great to be able to do these in a multidisciplinary fashion with uh, colleagues because they're, they're very complex procedures. What fascinating work you do. It must be very satisfying to fix things. It, it is, it is. I, 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 I love being able to save a hip and obviously we can't save all the hips and um, just, just uh, last um, uh, just, I think it was last month, I replaced the hip on a 16-year-old girl that I had done one of these OATS procedures when she was 13. And unfortunately, it never, it never healed. Um, uh, however, uh, the good news is that I do have a procedure that will make her better. So the, the, the total hip replacement, she did so well. She left the next day. I just got a note yesterday, she wants to go back to work. So, I mean, it's, it's a life-changing procedure as well. So when we can't save them, then we'll replace them and they, they do fabulous. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing with us today. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Rafael Sierra for sharing us, with us today about hip procedures, replacements and regenerative procedures. And uh, I hope you learned something today. I know I certainly did. And we wish you a wonderful day. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well.